Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 142. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Just want to remind you, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can, at Brian McClanahan. You can like me on Facebook, at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. You can also watch this podcast on my YouTube page. So go on out there and do that if you want to see this on video. Also, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. You can get all my social media buttons there. And when you're there, leave me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. And if you're on brianmcclanahan.com, go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and you can help support The Brian McClanahan Show. If you want to support The Brian McClanahan Show and get some good stuff for it, you can go to mcclanahanacademy.com, where I've got all of my courses that I'm offering there now, and there will be new stuff forthcoming. It's always free to join, and of course, you can purchase classes there. Also, you can go to learntruehistory.com, and you can subscribe there and get uh, more courses by yours truly, along with Tom Woods and Kevin Goodsman, a lot of great Liberty scholars. And, of course, you can always get your Brian McClanahan gear at redbubble.com. Just do a search for me, Brian McClanahan, at the top of the page. You'll get my logo, and you can buy all kinds of cool stuff with the Brian McClanahan Show logo on it. So go out there and get those things as well. Okay, so uh, today's uh, show is uh, going to a historical subject, so... I was notified uh, through Twitter, actually, of a, of a podcast interview with a professor of political science in, at, uh, in Alaska named Forrest Neighbors. And he's written this book entitled from, well, I can just show it to you, From Oligarchy to Republicanism. And uh, it was published by University of Missouri Press. And I was alerted to it, and the idea was that I would debate Dr. Neighbors because he has a position on this thing entirely opposite of mine. And so I said it would not be fair for me to make any comments about the book. I listened to the interview uh, until I had actually read the book. Um, and so what I want to do is talk about this particular book and some of the themes in it. And uh, th this particular uh, uh, Twitter uh, post was correct. I was going to disagree with everything he said. Um, and so now this is my response to it. So uh, let me start by saying, first and foremost, you know where Dr. Neighbors is coming from because... He dedicates the book to the late Harry Jaffa of uh, Claremont Institute in California, Claremont, California. Uh, if you're not familiar with Jaffa, he is a Straussian, and the Straussians are a major intellectual force in neoconservatism. So he's already coming from a position entirely opposite of my views on... American government, society, the founding. In fact, one of the things the Jaffaites and the Straussians say is that the Declaration of Independence is somehow a founding document in that the second paragraph of the Declaration, where Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He, basically, the Jaffaites say that is the foundation, that is the principle of American government. And anything that deviates from that is not really American in, in character. That that alone defines America. And so I've already done a, a podcast on Larry Arnn's The Founder's Key. And, of course, uh, that particular book is written from a Straussian position. And the Straussians believe 
that uh, strong central authority is necessary at times to do certain things. And they don't necessarily believe in real federalism at all. In fact, they are all nationalists. And I think that's the other issue where you have to get into, uh, and, and I'm going to point that out with this book by Forest Neighbors. I'm going I'm to point out several things, and I've made marks, as you can see here on, on the side, uh, several things that I found wrong with it. And that's not even going into the meat of the book, which he admits in this particular book, what, he, what he's looking at here is the 1860s and the things Republicans said about the South. The problem with that particular position is that he has absorbed their views, and this is what he thinks about the South. And so one of the things that I find interesting and curious about the book is that he is going to attack the quote-unquote lost causers, believing they've been duped into thinking what they think, that, of course, Southerners were lying about their own, their own section, their own views, their own, their own views on government. They were all lying about these things. And yet somehow the Republicans, namely the radical Republicans, because that's who he's really focusing on more than anyone else, they're all prescient and all-knowing, and they're not lying about anything. They're not, a, they're not embellishing anything. They're not saying anything for political points. They're doing nothing except being good, pure Americans. So on one hand, he's saying, well, these people are lying, but these people are not. And in fact, he even admits, he says, this book is part of a growing section of American historical literature. The slave power thesis is being reinvigorated and reestablished as the dominant theme when it comes to understanding the sectional conflict. And he says, but my book is not just another piece in the slave power literature. He does recognize that's essentially what he's saying here that slavery and nothing but slavery. But he's also saying that what he's doing is actually looking at the South, as he says, from oligarchy to republicanism. What he's saying is that the South was oligarchic, and that's only Reconstruction that saved the South from itself. Because of these good, noble Republicans in the North and the Republican Party, the South was saved from its oligarchy, and it was brought into the fold with real republicanism, which he equates to democracy. Now, he says, before that, they didn't have democracy. Now, I am going to talk about some of the things he says, and I'll branch off of that several times and, and mention other things from other books and other scholars, which, of course, are going to be the exact opposite. And I, I will say this. I don't think Forrest Neighbors has any understanding of the antebellum South. Zero. Uh, he says he does in the book. That, oh, well, I mean, I, have, I, have, I understand these things. I know these things, but I'm just not showing that in the book. Yet his conception of the South and also of the founding period is greatly lacking because he's read too much Harry Jaffa. He doesn't really understand the other side. He doesn't really understand originalism at all. He doesn't understand federalism. In fact, he uses the word American nation like that's essentially what the Constitution established, which is the exact opposite of what the Constitution established. In fact, the Constitution maintained the union that the founders had created before that point. And you know that from listening to this podcast, and I've talked about that ad nauseum, so I don't need to get back into that. I will, I will address some things. But I'm going to go through. There's several little, little points here that I'm going to start talking about. So first and foremost, you got Harry Jaffa, and he makes a very interesting statement early on. One of the first things he says that I found very interesting when he's getting into what this book is all about, he says, the character of the... Uh, of these regimes 
increasingly differed from the other until there were two fully formed regimes, and the two could no longer remain united or at peace. So he's saying the North and South. The difference between these two warring regimes became so sharp that they appeared to be opposite systems of civilization. Though both were American, geographically speaking. But if the defining antecedent of American is the American founding, then only one side in the war was American. Wow. So basically he's saying from the beginning, Southerners were not American. Southerners were not American. Let that sink in for a second. Even though the people who fought in the war recognized Southerners as American, they did. (laughs) He's saying now Southerners were not American. This is an important, important point to make because this is what these people think, that the South was somehow un-American in 1861. It, It wasn't following the founding principles of the country, yet he does say that these Southerners began to dupe people into believing they were following the founding principles of the country, of the United States. And... Uh, how can they do this? They've, they've just pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and made them think that this is, this is just untrue. Th- these people were not American. Then he goes on to make some very interesting statements. He said, while Union regiments were drawn from, the nine, from nine of the eleven seceding states that formed the Confederacy, the exceptions being Georgia, which supplied a battalion, and South Carolina whereas not counting the cleft border states, no Confederate regiments were drawn from any state remaining in the Union. So he does say the cleft border states. He, he makes a distinction there that, well, I mean, these border states, yeah, they did. We had Maryland, for example. But there were a large number of Confederate sympathizers drawn from the North. In fact, there were a large number of Northerners who fought for the South, including some of its highest-ranking general officers. You can say the same thing about the Union as well. In fact, you could say the, the Union wouldn't have won the war without the South because some of the best generals they had, particularly in the West, were Southerners. <laughs> so uh, the fact is, this was, there were Union, there were, there were Southerners fighting for the Union, but there were also many Northerners fighting for the Confederacy. And certainly there were, Union soldiers coming out of the South. Not everyone agreed with secession, but I've, I've talked about that before. He says, desertion crippled the Confederate Army, and some scholars now attribute the Confederacy's military defeat to this cause. He says, some scholars, but he only lists one. In fact, what's really interesting, he brings up in his notes uh, a book by Gary Gallagher in turn, entitled The Union War, but yet he curiously leaves out Gary Gallagher's other book, entitled The Confederate War, which basically destroys that entire thesis. Gallagher is no Confederate sympathizer. Gallagher even wrote in the beginning, in the, in the forward to that particular book, the preface to, uh, to The Confederate War, that people have criticized him being a neo-Confederate after this book. He says, I'm not. I'm just showing what the evidence shows, that this war was sustained by a, by a tremendous amount of support from the South, that that these desertions are overplayed and overstated, and everything, the, the, the southern home front, in other words, was extremely dedicated to the cause. They had to be. He also says something else, but in the 1864 presidential election, <clears throat> the Union Army rejected McClellan and the prospect of negotiated peace with the Confederacy and instead voted to reelect Lincoln and the certain continuation of the war in which they were dying. And they voted for Lincoln in higher proportion than the civilian public. Now, this is interesting because he does not bring up the book by Jonathan White, which was published before this, which essentially shows that the only reason you had a crushing 
majority in the Union Army for Lincoln is because Democratic votes were either suppressed or Democrats chose, who were in the Army, chose not to vote because of voter suppression, intimidation. So essentially, White has blown apart that entire thesis. But yet, Neighbors refuses to cite that. Uh, now, <clears throat> he also says this. There was a speech by Alfred Moore Waddell uh, in, um, where he was talking about, um, it was an address before a Confederate statue. He says, his address joined a growing chorus in the South, poignantly memorizing, memorializing the lost cause, a, reinterpreta- a reinterpretation of the Civil War that attributed its origin to Northerners' unconstitutional aggression against states' rights. He erased antebellum Southern statesmen's open break from the American founding fathers and made the founders and Confederates seem to be in alignment. He erased that. And he also goes on to say that 40 years after the founding, a race of kings, his word, race of kings arose from American soil. So Southerners are now kings. Southerners are, as the Republican Party called them, oligarchs. Yet, as I'm going to talk about in a minute, he simply does not understand Southern society. At all. Now, he also says some other funny... In fact, I laughed out loud reading this book several times because the statements he he was making were just so stupid. Now, he says this, quote, The division of the United States into two independent nations logically followed the division of the American political regime into two inherently hostile political regimes, one Republican in form, the other oligarchic. So this is his main point. One is Republican... One is oligarchic. So let me stop there for a second and talk about Republican. So essentially what he is saying, and what he, his, his vision of republicanism is based on a Greek form of republicanism that the founding generation didn't talk about as much. In fact, the founding... Now, now I would say... Uh, let, me, let me make a little caveat to that. The founding generation, particularly from the mid-Atlantic states south did not talk about a Greek form of republicanism much. The New Englanders did talk about Greek republicanism to an extent. But this is where you have a different vision of republicanism. There were two visions of republicanism on the American, uh, in the American states, in the British North American colonies. One was decidedly Roman. One was decidedly Greek. And his very narrow definition of republicanism essentially is that you have democracy. That's it. Whereas the other definition of republicanism is decidedly Roman. It was a certain character, a certain way of living. And uh, two particular books that I think do a very nice job describing this are Carl Richards' The Founders in the Classics, Greece, Rome, and the American Enlightenment. And in the conclusion, he brings this up. He says, look, the, even Adams in, in, in Massachusetts was talking about the Romans more than anything else. He brings up the fact that Washington's vision, George Washington's vision, was decidedly Roman, not Greek, when he started talking about republicanism. And so, essentially what these people believed 
is that republicanism was based on representation, not necessarily direct democracy, because they didn't believe in democracy at all. This is the funny thing about this particular situation and what Neighbors is saying. The founding generation, as you read this, you get the idea that somehow Neighbors believed the founding generation wanted America to be democratic, which is not what they wanted. Uh, the and he, and he brings up, and I'll, and I'll get to it in a few minutes. Again, I'll read some more parts of this. But he, he brings up the Virginia Constitutional Convention of the eight, late 1820s, and he says there were delegates there who were against democracy. And somehow that was alien to the founding, when as these people that were against it were generally the older generation of Virginians who were not in favor of mass democracy. They were not in favor of universal suffrage because they thought it was a bad idea. And you have Charles Sidnor, who wrote a very good book on uh, the founding of Virginia, American Revolutionaries in the Making, where his last chapter was entitled From 18th to 20th, from the 18th to the 20th. And he talks about how because Virginia was so anti-democratic, because it was a real republic, liberty flourished in Virginia in ways it did not in the much more democratic states. In fact, if you look at liberty in, say, Virginia compared to liberty in, say, Massachusetts, the two are entirely different. Now, of course, neighbors would go on to say, well, I mean, Jefferson and Madison, yeah, I agree with Jefferson and Madison. They were not pro-slavery. Really? If you read Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, he's pretty pro-slavery, in fact. I think Kevin Goodsman's book on Jefferson does a nice job discussing that, that he was par for the course. He was very pro-slavery. In fact, wasn't really interested in getting rid of it. Now, you did have some Southern founders that were, but for the most part, this was part of their economy, part of their society. They weren't interested in getting rid of slavery, but... We have to say, though, that slavery didn't make these men what they were. Slavery didn't define them. Their culture made slavery possible in that these were individuals who believed in living the English country gentleman lifestyle. And, of course, that required a laboring force, a plantation. They tried other types of labor, but they settled on slavery. Now, we can go back and say that's a bad idea. We can look at it and say slavery is a bad institution. Certainly from the 21st century perspective, this is entirely true. But when you start passing judgments this way, and of course in the 19th century, these people, as, as neighbors, has, has absorbed their ideology, they're entirely wrong about what was going on in the South. These were Republicans. They did believe in Republican institutions. They believed in a real republic. Another particularly good essay, and I think a better essay on this, besides Richard's book, but it's in Mel Bradford's. Now, of course, this is interesting because Mel Bradford hated Harry Jaffa. In fact, Jaffa and Bradford uh, are the polar opposites. And in fact, this particular book, A Better Guide Than Reason by Mel Bradford, with an introduction by Russell Kirk, uh, has an essay dedicated to tearing apart Harry Jaffa. In fact, it says, The Heresy of Equality, a reply to Harry Jaffa. So he, he rips apart Jaffa's understanding of the American founding, which is Jaffa's understanding of it is entirely wrong. The other thing he has is a nice little essay in here entitled A Teaching for Republicans, Roman History, and the Nation's First Identity. So he, he clearly outlines, if you read that essay, which I require, I would, I, if I was teaching 
this a class on this. I will require you to read. He outlines Roman republicanism and how important it was rather than this strange Greek republicanism, which is completely different. So let's continue, because he's got a whole bunch of other things in here that I think are just very funny, too, and completely wrong. Ongoing. Uh, here he says, oh, I just mentioned this, in the Virginia Constitution Convention of 1829-1830, delegates openly supported rule by the rich and announced natural equality. That's because that was the American mind. <laughs> the American mind had not changed. Even Jefferson didn't believe in natural equality. But yet, uh, somehow neighbors seems to think he did. Uh, he also gets into, he says, that the soul of the revolutionary Southern oligarchy quickened and its leaders moved against national republicanism, just as the political theory of the Federalists and of, and of Aristotle predicted. So there again, he's looking at Greek, Greek republicanism. And he's saying that somehow the Federalist the Federalist essays were completely Republican. Uh, as, as he says, at this point, preservation of the Union was the most urgent priority. The Union could have, could have let its erring sister state depart the Union in peace then and later in 1860-61, could have peaceably bid farewell to the other state, sister states also. But this could not have been a cost-free, amicable divorce. This Union at either time surely would have destroyed the American Republic and also the American model of Republican government which was designed to secure liberty. Now, here is a really stupid statement. That, first of all, these states, in leaving the Union in 1661, did so through Republican processes. They elected delegates who then seceded from the Union. This was supported by the people of the states. How much more Republican can you get? But, of course, no, no, no. He brings up Joffa in here. Well, this is not what Joffa said about the Gettysburg Address. All right. Again, just stupid. I hate to say that, but I mean, he, he's, he's so unfamiliar with the other side of literature. He's so unfamiliar with it. He'll say things like this. And so he goes on. Now he brings up federalism. He says, well, you know, but we had this larger part. We have to have federalism. But he doesn't even understand what that is. He says the remedy was federalism or division and organization of power between the national and state governments. First of all, it was not a national government, and everyone who was interested in supporting the Constitution in 1787 and 1788 refused to call it that, because they understood that's not they were creating a general government for general purposes, as Madison explained. Powers appropriate to the national objects were enumerated and given to the national government in the Constitution. All others remained with the states. Well, that's true. But he doesn't understand. He says, well, look, then John C. Calhoun distorted all this. He distorted it. He says, but all was not going so well. While Madison was lauding the handiwork of the framers, the rules, rulers of the consolidating Southern oligarchy were just then beginning to test the durability of the constitutional structure. During the nullification crisis, John C. Calhoun, the great philosopher statesman of oligarchy, <laughs> which, of course, Calhoun, as Clyde Wilson nicely emphasizes in his essential Calhoun, was a Republican. Calhoun, in fact, talked about Republican institutions over and over again. He wasn't an oligarch. 
His exposition and protests and imitated our founding character. Our founding character, yes, our founding charter. Excuse me. Cataloged the alleged crimes of popular injustice committed by the national government, and unveiled his reinterpreted constitutional order that stymied and declared independence from majority government. Uh, reinterpreted what? He basically went back and started looking at what the founders said about the document itself. He wasn't reinterpreting anything. He was explaining how the Constitution was sold to the states, which was that the general government would have certain defined, clearly delegated, in term, and, and act, actually expressly delegated, that term was used in selling the Constitution, powers the states would have all else. I've talked about this, again, ad nauseum on this podcast. So if you listen, you know that. Uh, and then he says, of course, the South was oligarchic. Now, another funny thing. <laughs> this is one of the funniest statements I've ever read when it comes to this particular period of time. He says this. In 1833, Marshall wrote the opinion for the Supreme Court in Baron v. Baltimore, City of Baltimore, which bowed to Calhounism, ruling that the Bill of Rights in the Constitution limited only the federal government, not state governments. In other words, he interpreted the Bill of Rights correctly at that time. But it bowed to Calhounism. How about it bowed to originalism, which is what Calhoun was expounding? This is the one time Marshall was actually doing the right thing. The one time. Of course, if you read my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, or if you bought my class on Hamilton at McClanahan Academy, you would know that because I get into this. But here again, for us, he doesn't understand originalism. He doesn't understand the original Constitution. He has no concept of it. Zero. He needs to stop reading Harry Jaffa and actually read some real stuff. He needs to go back and read the ratification debates, which he says in the podcast, all I do is read primary documents. Really? He must not have read these. Must never have read the preamble to the Bill of Rights. Must never have read how uh, people like Tench Cox are saying, well, this is what the states can do, and this is what the general government can do, and they're completely different. There's no fear. Uh, if, if, the, if the general government has powers, if it... If it uh, uses powers that are not delegated to it, well, then the law is null and void. Even Hamilton said that. Guess he doesn't know that. That would be federalism. Baron B. Baltimore was simply an expression of federalism. So, again, Forest Neighbors needs to go back and do some more reading. Uh, he does say... Um, he, he gets into some other things. He, he brings up the question of Southern oligarchy. And he says, you know, well, uh, yeah, the, the South, I mean, you can make the claim that there was oligarchy all over the place, but only the South could be oligarchic. And that's because only the South acquired its wealth off the backs of other people, unjustifiable wealth, in other words. That it wasn't real wealth in terms of, uh, you know, say, a northern industrialist. Uh, it, it, these people are only getting comfort out of it. They're not getting any more power. Really? I mean, he really is going to say that, that the people, the rich people in the North didn't have any more power because of their wealth? Now, I want to bring up, and this is where I'm, I'm, I'm running short on time here. So, um, I, I want to bring up a book, not by not by anyone on, on our side, but it's a little book entitled Debating Slavery, Economy and Society in the Antebellum American South. And it's, it's authored by Mark Smith, who I actually worked, at, worked with at University of South Carolina. And I want to read his conclusion in this little book when you get into the yeoman, the yeoman members of Southern society. What do we mean by yeoman? These are not the large planters. He wrote a little chapter on them. And he, and he basically is bringing in 
the literature on the South from a variety of different topics. And these are people that know the South, that have studied the South. And he says this. He says, quote, yeoman and non-slave owners, with the possible exception of landless whites, fought in the Civil War very much for their own, often ideological reasons, most of which had little to do with a belief in Herrenvolk democracy or fear of the planter elite. Now, Herrenvolk democracy, meaning that you have an oligarchic system, essentially, is what they're talking about there. These, there was no oligarchic system in the South. But perhaps most importantly, work on yeoman points to the subtle ways commercial and pre-commercial forces worked on southern farms. We are left with the impression that black belt planters and yeomen were heavily involved in the market economy, while southern upcountry yeomen, to varying degrees, entered this economy very much on their own terms and thereby embraced commercial economic practices while at the same time preserving a more traditional pre-market mentality. This kind of sophisticated analysis of the subtle interplay of capitalist and pre-capitalist forces in the South not only reminds us of the diversity of the region, but it might, as well, might well point the way to a theoretical reconsiderations of the nature of the Old South as a whole. Um, so the fact is, as he brings up in this particular chapter, these yeomen, the society was very diverse. We have to understand that the South was very diverse. And not only that, uh, there were people who were in these... Planter class, very small percentage, about 5%. 5% of the total southern population you could call the planter class. They didn't, they didn't run every government. They didn't control society. In fact, even people like Lacey Ford, again, no one who is uh, really on, on the side of saying, you know, having very much very many good things to say about the South, says, look, these yeomen were important. In fact, Ford's conclusion is that the middling landowners were more interested in secession than the planters. They were stronger in favor. And these were not people that were the quote-unquote oligarchic elite. That there was a tremendous amount of democracy in the South. Frank Owlsley points that out in his uh, Plain Folk of the, of the Old South. He, so I, I don't think that neighbors really understands the South. He doesn't really understand it at all, what it was, what the economy was like, what the people there were like. And all he's doing is writing a book based on, and he says it, based on the interpretation of the South from these Republicans. And so from that, he says, well, it's the slave power. Well, I could write a book like that, too. And yet I could take it from the other side. And I would, the book would never get published because I would be called a very narrow minded historian who's just writing about the lost cause and how I've been duped. Well, I think Dr. Neighbors has been duped by the Republicans. Because for years, and even he bashes some of the more complex studies, the political, like people like Michael Holt and others who said, look, this is a political conflict. These people were all American. They had, a, they had an interpretation of America that just didn't mesh with each other. Yet they were all still American. However, the Jeffersonian ideal, the Roman Republican ideal, was the dominant ideal until the Republican Party took over in the 1860s. Then things changed, but these people were Americans. So that's the sad part of this book, is people are going to read it and say, well, I mean, yeah, the South wasn't American. It was absolutely American. In fact, I make a case it's more American than the North. So there's my two cents on the book. Um, it's expensive. I wouldn't buy it if I was you. If you have to uh, deal with the slave power literature, which is growing in volumes, uh, you might have to look at Forest Neighbor's book. Otherwise, uh, it's better left on the library shelf where it belongs. 
uh, and not in your book on your bookshelf. I'll see you next time on the Brian Plan.